You're listening to Drones in America on Market Scale. Your host, Grant Guillot, leads the unmanned aircraft systems practice team for the law firm of Adams and Reese. Every week, he will be chatting with leaders, influencers, and experts who are impacting the rapidly growing commercial drone industry in the United States to help us through the complex web of technology and policy. Our first guest, Tom Walker, is the CEO of Drona, the fastest growing drone services provider in the United States. On this episode, Tom and Grant are walking us through the real implications of the remote ID statuses set forth by the FAA. Tom, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about your background. When did you first become involved in the commercial drone industry? Um, I actually got uh, involved in 2016. Um, I was the president of a technology company um, and uh, had been uh, for the past uh, 20 years uh, leveraging new technology strategies and new models to solve business problems and for other people. And uh, and then when I uh, was first exposed to the uh, prosumer drone market, really saw that there was a, a significant opportunity, a lot of opportunities to utilize drones, uh, but there really wasn't a lot of companies who were focused on uh, actual application. There was a lot of manufacturing, there was a lot of analytics, but really wasn't anybody who was focused on solving problems and improving business processes. So I know you were an officer with the Navy for six and a half years, and prior to that, you were in the Navy for 10 years. How has your military experience shaped your involvement with drones? <laughs> That's a great question. So um, when I was enlisted, I was a nuclear engineer on submarines. And then uh, when I was commissioned, I transitioned over to support the special operations community. And I don't think you can have two more diverse uh, career paths than that, right? So in the, in, the, in, the, in the nuclear Navy, we were really um, about having to solve problems with limited resources. Um, you really didn't have the opportunity to innovate much. Um, and then when I transitioned over into the special operations community, uh, it was all about innovating. And so it was about taking my engineering background uh, from my enlisted days and, and figuring out how to innovate and create new policies and processes uh, mostly using technology to improve the, uh, the uh, efficiency, efficacy, and safety of our special operations forces. Uh, I think that transition uh, really laid the groundwork for, okay, now drones are new and, and very new, right? I mean, people really didn't know what it was we were going to be doing with them, what was the product. Uh, the end users hadn't yet figured out how they were going to use it. The government hadn't figured out how it was gonna, they were going to regulate it. So it just seemed like a, a perfect fit for me uh, based, on the, uh, based on my career path up until that point. Now tell me about your thesis, the point of mobile confluence and how that led to your being tapped as an advisor to the White House. Um, yeah, so um, I wrote this uh, paper uh, years ago where my, the whole focus uh, was actually quite simple and that was as mobile technologies continued to uh, emerge and become more prevalent, uh, those mobile devices were going to be the center point for 
uh, everything um, in our lives, whether it was access to the people that we cared about, whether it was data and information for entertainment, whether it was uh, work related, everything was going to be really driven to that. And so it was going to have a fundamental change on both the workforce and, 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 and how we managed our workforces. Um, and, and it was also going to have a fundamental impact on how we educated, um, educated the workforce, both from elementary through uh, high school and, and on. And so I had given a presentation on this and was brought into the White House actually by the Secretary of Education more for how do we start to, uh, rather than just ban mobile phones in school and in and, 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 and different education environments, how do we actually begin to embrace them knowing that they're going to be a key component of the workforce moving forward? And, um, and, and I was there um, and worked in the White House uh, on a part-time basis for, um, for several months, uh, helping develop some of those policies. Neat. So now tell me what led you to establish DroneUp. Well, when I first was exposed to uh, what I would call the consumer drone market and then quickly started looking at some of the the, what I would call the prosumer drones, um, I really felt like there were two key uh, uh, issues that were going to have to be overcome. Uh, one was that for the foreseeable future, there was going to be a man or a person in the unmanned space. And I still stand by that. I mean, yes, we're going to have autonomous flights and we're going to have beeve loss, but there's going to be people that are involved, whether it's maintaining the drones, offloading data from the drones, loading packages onto the drones, pilot of records for the drones. So I knew that that was going to be a key component. And then the second thing that I, 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 I predicted was that for the foreseeable future, and, and I still stand by this as well, most organizations would not be able to manage the fleet of equipment, the fleet of pilots, and, and, and the changing technologies and the policies and the certification requirements so there was going to be a need to have the ability to respond with a professional uh, pilot fleet with a diverse and disparate set of pilot or of, of aircraft and platforms uh, that were trained and 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 scalable and and that's really in 16 uh, what what i saw as the future and that led to the development of our drone up platform and uh, so far to date uh, we've been we've been pretty accurate with that prediction so what are some of the ways drone up has served government agency i would say that it's been minimal to date um you know for a variety of reasons that i'm sure you're aware of uh, certainly on the state and local uh, we've done uh, uh, we've done some support work and emergency response harvey irma um, uh, jose the wildfires in california um, down in puerto rico a lot of that was more humanitarian um, now, with the recent award of the multi-state um, drone services contract, I think that we're going to have the opportunity to provide more of those services uh, to state and local throughout the country. Uh, on the federal side, um, you know, it's, it's been a challenge because the, the predominant uh, drone in our fleet, um, you know, uh, platform manufacturer is uh, DJI. and. Uh, uh, certainly the federal government has some some issues with those and, and in some cases justifiably so so uh, I wouldn't say that we've done much on the federal and state side we've certainly done some consulting and some advising uh, but most of the work has been commercial and a little bit on state and local 
So Drone Up in the state of Arizona recently signed a participating addendum for the National Association of State Procurement Officers, the value point contract for drone services. Tell me about this development. Yeah, this is really significant, and I think uh, doesn't quite, I don't think it's gotten the attention that it probably uh, deserves because this contract was originally um, initiated by Virginia. Um, and then the NASPO, the National Association of State Procurement Officers, uh, picked it up and adopted it. And what that means is, is that um, as a NASPO contract, multiple states can participate on it. And the, um, you know, the North America was broken up into 12 zones and then five categories in each one of those zones, transportation, emergency response, marketing and tourism and so forth. And so this was an opportunity for companies um, throughout the United States to compete for different zones and different categories. Uh, Drone Up was very fortunate. We won all zones, all categories. Um, and that was the first big win. That only took 18 months. And then the next phase is uh, each state has to sign their participating addendum so that you can, um, so that you can sell within those states. The reason that this is such a significant development is two of the major roadblocks, uh, in my opinion, that were uh, impeding the adoption of drone services by state and local were, first and foremost, there had been no vetting uh, of drone companies to determine what are the minimum standards and who meets those minimum standards to be able to provide drone services. Um, and so the, you know, the old joke was anybody, you know, anybody with a drone was a drone company. Um, so this 18 month competitive, uh, uh, vetting process established that list of vendors. And then the second part, as you well know, is it's very difficult, uh, to purchase, uh, services for the government when there's been no com competitive, uh, pricing. Uh, establishment. So this really did both things. It, it vetted a group of companies that had the experience and the capabilities to perform the services and it established baseline pricing uh, for state and local adoption of services. So I think it's very significant. It was just awarded late last year and uh, early this year. I think we're at six states now have signed um, and we're uh, our goal is to by the end of this year is to have uh, uh, better than half of the of the country and the U.S. territories on board. Well, that certainly is a significant development. So congratulations for that. That's great news. And I agree that m most great developments in the drone world are underreported, and this is one of them. So congratulations. So tell me, how has DroneUp served military organizations? Very little. Uh, you know, we've uh, worked with the Coast Guard in advising them on some use of drones and search and rescue. Uh, we have uh, been involved in discussions with uh, with the Navy, I know some of my colleagues have done some specific uh, pilot contract support uh, overseas, but, but by and large, uh, we haven't really done much other than uh, uh, some advisory uh, and consulting work uh, that, in, and there's a few things that we may have participated in, but, it, but I would say that publicly that it's been mostly in an advisory role. Obviously, one of the things that's going on right now in the commercial drone industry is every day it seems like there's a new sector that's being served by the drone industry. I think we're finding ways to use drones that 10 years ago we couldn't even imagine. What are some of the commercial industries serviced by drone up? 
So, you know, undoubtedly our largest um, uh, sector is facilities management, whether it's uh, uh, thermal roof inspections, parking lot inspections, building inspections, safety inspections, um, uh, cell tower inspections, chemical tank inspections. And, and all of these things have a common denominator, and that is they are things that uh, either required um, risky personnel uh, performance before the you know climbing towers and being up in the air like that, or they required very expensive manned aircraft. Obviously, to have a large facility inspected with a manned aircraft and a thermal sensor was cost prohibitive for a lot of companies, uh, where it's not now, and so. Um, you know, I, that's hands down power and energy um, and facilities is where we're seeing the highest growth. I think some of the areas where people predicted we would see higher growth, uh, insurance claims on residential roofs and things um, have not grown as significantly, but not because the technology won't do it and it, not because we don't have scalable fleets to perform it, but actually because most of these companies, their business processes uh, do not accommodate the consumption and use of that data in a way that makes them more efficient. What it really does is creates a new process and, 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 and an additional work. So until we really figure out how to take that uh, data and, and utilize it to make their, their, their final product a better product at a better price, um, I don't think that we'll see the growth in, in that market and certain other markets that are very similar. So another order of congratulations are, are due for drone up recently being designated by the FAA as an unmanned aircraft system service supplier authorized to provide Lance services. Lance, of course, standing for low altitude authorization and notification capability. Congratulations on this development. Now tell me about your airspace planner platform. Yes, so uh, thank you for that, and, and that was quite an accomplishment, and, and I, I, I'm very uh, proud of our technical team for, for pulling, putting that together. I know a lot of companies have, have attempted to do that, and it's, it's, it's a complex process, and the FAA does everything they can to make it easier or as easy as possible, but it's still not. Um, the, uh, I, you know, I think Lance is going to play a very key role in uh, airspace management, not just from the standpoint of being able to uh, control flights within uh, close proximity of airports, but I think it's going to play a key role, at least the backbone of it, in, in airspace management throughout recreational and, 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 and integrating with RID. Um, our airspace planner is, is proven to be very valuable for our commercial operators because uh, they can go in, request uh, airspace clearance weeks in advance, um, and then by doing so have the authority to fly, but then be notified of any potential changes, TFRs, uh, flight restrictions that may uh, come up. We actually notify them of potential weather uh, conditions uh, that could impede their ability to perform their commercial operations, and we'd give them that information as in, well in advance to uh, hopefully uh, help their not just our own contractors that work for us, but we provide this to any uh, commercial operator who wants to use the system for free. One thing that's kind of taken the drone industry by storm is the very long awaited release of the NOSA proposed, NOSA proposed rulemaking regarding remote identification, which of course was just released this past New Year's Eve. What was your first impression upon reading the NPRM? Um, 
Yeah, so um, I, um, my biggest comment on it, which I think, um, you know, it, it was I, I told everybody it was, it was 88,000 words of seemingly good intention and 87 pages of common sense. Um, it, there wasn't anything in the NPRM that I think should have surprised anybody. And I don't think there's anything in there that should scare anybody with the exception of one item and one issue, and I've written about this, uh, which is the, uh, the potential real-time exposure of the drone operator location. In my article that I recently published, I highlighted three pilots who were physically assaulted, one who was shot with a, a stun gun, uh, who were all operating in uh, commercially viable, uh, appropriate situations, but because of negative perceptions, they were, um, they were put in harm's way. So I think there's a couple of things I could say about it. One, the timeline is too aggressive, and it, I just don't see any way it's going to be implemented in the timeline they propose. But if you don't set a timeline and set standards, then you'll never achieve uh, remote ID, which is, I, I agree is necessary for uh, our industry to be sustainable and to grow. Uh, but I think any time you start talking about making the operator uh, physical position uh, uh, publicly available in real time, it puts an unnecessary risk on professional and responsible drone operators. And that's been my biggest issue with, with the uh, NPRM to date. So another issue that's kind of standing in the way of widespread drone use is public acceptance and perception. What are some of the biggest challenges you see the, that the drone industry faces in trying to get the public to accept commercial drone use? Well, first off, we don't have a, an organization, a national organization, who is committed to promoting uh, the growth of the drone industry. Um, so by and large the information that gets out to the public is uh mostly negative it's uh what happened at gatwick what happened at new jersey uh you know uh, you know several reports that were many of which were late later turned out to be um, incorrect um, make headlines in the news um, there I, there are justifiably concerns over privacy and and one of the things that i you know i discuss on a regular basis is the need to promote um, the positives uh, and the need to work through educational marketing to change the narrative in the general public. And we're very fortunate that we're engaged in a couple of projects right now with a couple of international, national and international companies to do some things with them using drones that are, um, you know, simple um, and, 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 but really driven to uh, help promote the adoption of drones and make them more approachable by the general public. And until either we pull that off or a broader organization is, 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 is established and committed to that, we're going to continue to face that challenge of, uh, of uh, disconcerting perception. So kind of going back to remote ID, once those rules do become effective, how long do you think it will take before drones become more prevalent in the U.S. airspace? I don't believe that those rules are what's preventing uh, prevalent. I mean, you know, right now, for example, uh, there are flight operations going on around the world. Uh, we have uh, operate most of the operations that we are doing um, are within a 1500 foot radius. Um, the I, I think we've only begun to scratch the surface of what we can do. Um, I, I think people think about beyond visual line of sight. 
uh, and, and, and fully autonomous operations as being the trigger that's going to ignite this uh, mass integration into the airspace. And I don't actually think that's the case. I think that we have, um, I think we have an opportunity for hyperbolic growth in our industry uh, that can and I think will occur uh, prior to uh, remote ID, it's, at least as it's currently articulated in the NPRM. Uh, being established. To answer your question, uh, I know that there's the three, you know, the, I know what the timelines are in there. I would say double those and you're probably uh, probably on, on target. So, Tom, kind of in wrapping up, uh, I kind of want to ask you something a little off the grid. What are some of the most interesting things you've done as a drone pilot since obtaining your own Part 107 certificate? Uh, well, I don't get to do much anymore. Um, that's kind of the downside. Um, I spend more time talking about it than doing it. Um, I would say that um, I've been involved in some search and rescue operations um, that were the first of their kind. They were groundbreaking. They didn't always have the outcome that we would have desired. Um, but, but, but being involved in them early um, and let, learning those lessons and sharing those lessons with our community and our industry and knowing that what we did at that time has made an impact that has allowed better outcomes to be executed by, by some of my uh, colleagues that followed after me, I think that's probably the most interesting and fulfilling thing that I've been involved in. Great. Well, Tom, it was a joy having you on the program. Um, I definitely would like to invite you to come back again at a later date. Uh, you provide a lot of great insight, and congratulations on all of DroneUp's success. Thank you, Grant, and I'd love to come back. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Drones in America. Keep your eyes to the sky and fly safe. Join us next week as we continue to explore the many uses of unmanned aircraft systems in American business and monitor the rapidly evolving commercial drone industry.